When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. For new episodes delivered to you every Thursday, make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to, you can also leave us a rating and a review. It's Christmas time, so to celebrate, we have a slightly early present for you. Everything you wanted to know about the history of Christmas as explained by our English heritage experts. So, without further ado, let's meet our guests. Hi, I'm Megan Leyland and I'm a Senior Properties Historian at English Heritage. Hi there, I'm Andrew Han and I'm the Head of the Properties Historians team. I'm Will Wyeth and I'm a Properties Historian at English Heritage as well. Thank you all for joining us and thank you to everyone who's asked a Christmas-related question on English Heritage's social media channels. So let's unwrap your answers and we'll start off by tackling some date-related questions. As Karen Stringer on Facebook wants to know, how can the origins of Christmas be over 2,000 years old? While Isla has asked, why do we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December? So Will, can you answer those ones? Yeah, so although it might not seem like it, these questions are actually related to each other. So firstly, the origins of Christmas are specifically associated with the life of Jesus Christ, who was born and died around 2,000 years ago. So that may be where the origins of this 2,000-year-old festival come from. Now, secondly, relatedly, there is this idea that Christmas is the latest iteration in a long-running tradition of religious festivals centering on the winter solstice. That's the longest night and the shortest day. I'll address both of these points, as well as talk about how we get to Christmas falling on the 25th of December. Okay. So, of course, the central figure of Christianity is Jesus Christ, and Christmas as a festive fixture in the calendar celebrated the birth of Jesus. Now, Jesus died in 33 AD, and after that point, the cult of Jesus spread and Christianity began soon after as a religion. But it was only a few centuries later that we begin to find people coming together to commemorate his birth date. And we can understand that he's a central figure in the religion and believers wanted to recognize that. But the story wasn't so straightforward. Some early Christian thinkers like Oregon thought that it shouldn't be celebrated because the act of celebrating a religious figure's birthday was too much like non-Christian celebrations in his mind. But also people like Oregon thought, right, well, in celebrating his birthday, you're taking away from the central importance of Easter in Christianity when Christians celebrate the resurrection or the coming back to life of Jesus. So whether Jesus was born or not on the 25th of December is not known for certain. Many ancient churches that survive today actually believe that his birth date is on the 6th of January, for example. Some early theologians, so some early thinkers on Christianity, people like Hippolytus of Rome, believed that the 25th of December was correct when he was writing in around 200 AD, but lots of other dates were in circulation. People like Hippolytus thought that because Jesus was conceived on the 25th of March, it took precisely nine months for him to be born. 
Interestingly, it's likely that the actual date of Jesus's birth wasn't actually a point of contention until Christians started writing down their chronologies, so their histories of the world, which requires you to also know precise information like dates. But related to that, the date of Jesus's birth also became a bone of contention when Christians started arguing amongst each other around the two natures of Christ. That's Christ as a human and Christ as someone divine. And some Christians thought that by establishing his human birthday on the 25th of December, they were making a point that actually his human side was as important as his divine side. Now, you may have also heard that the date of Jesus's birthday, Christmas, was chosen out of a desire to rival existing or up and coming cults in the Roman world. And part of this comes from a recognition that Early Christianity wasn't the only cult on the block and that several other religious communities were active at the time. This theory also takes the view that church leaders wanted to outcompete rival cults by placing Jesus's birthday on the important date of one rival, that of Sol Invictus, that's the unconquered son. So we find in 278 AD, for example, the Roman Emperor Aurelian elevated the god Sol Invictus as a supreme deity of the Roman Empire and established a new temple to the god in Rome on the 25th of December of that year. Now, in support of this idea that some people have put forward that Christmas was put on the 25th to outrival local cults, it's recognised that a lot of Christian art around the time uses solar imagery, so images of the sun and referencing it. So we find Christ referred to as the true sun. That's S-U-N, not S-O-N. Mm-hmm. So... With this in view, we might think that Christ's birthday being placed on the 25th was to outcompete those other religions, but the story is more complicated. So, for example, one historian has argued that there's actually no strong reason to think the 25th of December was important or even an ancient date in the cult of Sol Invictus. That's the rival that some people have said Christmas was set up to go against. So that makes the placing of Christmas on the 25th to outcompete that cult nonsensical. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Now, ultimately, we have to recognise that the origins of Christmas being on the 25th of December may owe something both to the early thinking of theologians, the influence of parallel religious communities like the Sol Invictus, as well as changes within Christian communities across a vast area that Christianity came to embrace. It's not right to think that it was one thing or the other, but probably best to recognise the reality lies somewhere in the muddy middle. Similarly, the idea that the origins of Christmas can be traced back 2,000 years or more can be argued to be both true and false. True because Christianity did not emerge as a religion in a vacuum, and the winter solstice has been a tradition, a fixture of tradition for much longer than 2,000 years. But it's also wrong to say that, because Christmas is explicitly the celebration of the birth of Jesus, who was born and died just over 2,000 years ago. So, I'm afraid I'm giving you several answers. (laughs) Yes, well, it's a highly nuanced set of questions, really, by Isla and Karen, and it requires nuanced answers. As with a lot of things in history, it's not that simple. So I think you've done a really good job there, Will, of explaining the situation as best you can. Thank you. We'll move on to another one for you, Will. So hopefully if you're not completely out of breath, we'll give you another toughie. Aria has a question about the origins of Christmas, which you sort of touched on a bit there, saying, is it true that a lot of Christmas traditions are based on pagan, not Christian beliefs? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid those fans of you out there of short and simple answers are going to be disappointed with my answer to this question as well as perhaps the last one. So this is quite tricky because on the face of things, some traditions in England and Britain relating to Christmas are perhaps clearly inspired by pre-Christian traditions, though not necessarily beliefs. I'll, I'll refer back to that distinction between traditions and beliefs later. I'm going to focus on one group of Christian traditions, which can be traced back to Roman traditions. So I've already talked a bit about the Romans. For example, in the medieval period, Christmas celebrations included a temporary reversal of social roles where servants acted as masters and masters as servants. And we find really good evidence for this in the church where we find junior members of the church, junior clergy figures, temporarily made rulers over their seniors and vice versa. That's during a particular stretch of Christmas after the 25th, that's the 26th, the 28th. That's a time period called the Feast of Fools fools this idea that you're kind of changing how things go and versions of this kind of reversal are carried into all aspects of church life so we find boy bishops being set up so these are children young boys who for a day for a series of days are set up as bishops over the wider congregation the wider community in which they're based and those specific um kind of elevations of boy bishops take place most especially on the two days in December that are connected with children. So that's the Feast of St. Nicholas on the 6th of December and Holy Innocence on the 28th. And in fact, we find a version of this in even Tudor courtly life. I think this will be familiar to you, Charles, Mm -hmm. with the idea of the Lord of Misrule, which was a big part of Tudor festivities. And actually, as I was thinking of this question, I was reminded that sometimes in crackers on the Christmas table, you get paper crowns. And I thought, is that some sort of legacy or is it kind of a reference to that Lords of Misrule thing where everyone can be king for a day? Don't, <laughs> don't quote me on that because I've not done, done the research. <laughs> but this playful blurring of social rules, this kind of undoing of laws that govern society has some similarities to the Roman festival of Saturnalia, which comprised initially one day and then several days of partying and festivals beginning on the 17th of December. Now that festival was in honour of Saturn, who was, among other things, the Roman god of farming and harvests. But Saturn is also quite a strange god among the Roman pantheon. He's There are some contradictions in his character. So some stories of, of how his origin story as a deity present him both as a foreigner exiled to Italy in chains or asleep. The traditions are, are, are kind of vary on this point. But they also show him as a supreme ruler of the region of Rome, so the heartland of the Roman Empire. He's this bringer of peace, justice and civilization alongside being this person who's been thrown out of originally Greece was considered the home of the gods. So Saturnalia was a time of contradictions, this festival, and that partly referred to Saturn's own ambiguous nature. But there's one scholar who says that this idea of contradictions and and maybe chaos, the reversal of order, may also reflect people's fears and concerns around midwinter. This is a time when the days are very short, the nights are longer, food supplies are perhaps looking slightly scarce than they usually would because you're not able to do as much cultivation or raise animals, etc. in this time. But more broadly, Saturnalia is this time which I'm probably familiar to. People gave each other gifts, they drank and ate more than usual, they told each other stories and played games. People's houses were decorated with wreaths and evergreen plants and people even wore strange cone-shaped hats. It was like It was like a big party, basically, like a festival. But to go back to the question, it was about pagan beliefs, not traditions. And this is this is tricky to answer. As I mentioned, the Romans celebrated Saturnalia in honour of Saturn. 
and the festival itself may have played upon more universal feelings of uncertainty around winter, as I said. In Rome itself, Saturnalia involved a public sacrifice made to the gods. Family would then return home to continue the celebration, and some of the well-off in society made further sacrifices, and those were made to appease the favour. So that's, that's the belief that underlies the tradition. So can we say that it's true that Christmas traditions were based on pagan and not Christian beliefs? For my view, others may disagree with this, it's a no. Just as many of us will celebrate this Christmas without some of the religious rituals which characterised the Christian celebration for hundreds of years, the act of celebrating the traditions of Christmas, the eating and drinking too much, the giving of gifts, the playing of games, the singing of songs, is as much about tradition full stop, and to my mind, not so much about the beliefs which underlay their origins, at least, if that makes sense. Yes, in a very academic way, I think I've understood what you're driving at. You're sort of defining your terms and it's sort of a mixed question really because it talks about Christmas traditions and then Christian beliefs. So I suppose yeah. if, it, if it was, is it true that a lot of Christmas traditions are based on pagan, not Christian traditions? That might be a completely different answer. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It, it, it's a very complicated question. I think part of the challenge is that we have to rethink what we think about what makes traditions and beliefs and how how these things change over time. It's, yes. it's really not straightforward. Yes, it's a semantic question, really. Um, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well done to Aria for trying to outfox us. The first question that's come in via threads now from Jenny Lusmore, who asks, to what extent are Christmas celebrations confused with Yule or Alban Arthen, Will? So we're sort of diving yeah. into a few more sort of traditions here and uh, a few more names of things within the celebrations. Yeah, so this is touching upon this idea of non-Christian traditions, and it's also a tricky one, though, though slightly more straightforward, I think, because we've got a bit more evidence underlying this. So some listeners who may not be familiar with the terms that Charles just said, so we've got Yule, which is the name for a midwinter feast, which is now sometimes used to mean Christmas, and Yule is also used to recognise a winter festival which is recorded or suspected over much of northern Europe and was popular in, in that large swathe of the continent before the arrival of Christianity. So in Britain specifically, it's been associated with the arrival of settlers from Denmark and northern Germany, people we call Anglo-Saxons, from the 5th century. They brought this Yule tradition with them, as did the Vikings when they came to Britain slightly later as well. So that's Yule. Alban Arthan is slightly more complicated. It's the name given to a midwinter solstice festival and was part of a cycle of festivals found in ancient sources by the Welsh antiquarian Edward Williams, who's better known by his kind of bardic name, Yolo Morganug. Yolo Morganug lived between 1747 and 1822. Now, during his life, people began to think that henges, standing stones, chambered tombs and earthwork avenues in Britain were not, as had been thought previously, the work of past civilizations like the Romans or the post-Roman Britons or the Vikings, but rather people started to think, ah, these monuments are the work of the people of Britain in prehistory, so even earlier. And so many at that time connected these very early monuments with the Druids that are recorded in Roman sources. They were a little bit fuzzy on the chronology, so we have to forgive them that. And so Morgan Oog, who was fascinated with Welsh prehistory and in fact British prehistory full stop, went to look in the very large body of Welsh literature to find evidence of Druids and Druidic practice which might have survived in those sources. 
might have survived the Welsh conversion to Christianity. Now, here is the kicker. He could find no evidence, and so he created several forgeries, which included devising a system of Druidic festivals. And one of those festivals is Albanarthan, and that took place on the 21st of December. Now, according to Morganug's work, his forgeries, bards in prehistory celebrated Albanarthan at the winter solstice, and plants like mistletoe were a big part of that. Now, although researchers since the early 20th century have believed that Morganug's work on these festivals are forgeries, the enthusiasm and the deep sense of prehistory, the work he and others brought to Welsh identity, has been long-lasting. Similarly, many pagans today celebrate Albanarthan in the spirit, if not the detail, of Morganug's creation. So it's a festival marking midwinter with a sense of attachment to the landscape and to monuments dotted across Britain, which also had clear associations with the solstices. Now, we've got both Yule and Albanarthan covered. Now, Jenny Lismore's question was about the extent to which modern Christmas celebrations are confused with these festivals. I suppose it's worth saying, I mentioned this already, traditions change over time and they're not fixed. So I don't think we can say one was confused with the others. For pagans today, midwinter is very important. And similarly, if your parents and grandparents celebrated Christmas, you might recognise differences in how you might celebrate it today. To kind of be a bit more conciliatory, I think it's fair to say that modern Christmas, Yule and Albanarthan all drew on similar ideas, traditions and practices, all have a focus on the darkest part of winter, all tend to emphasise the marking of this time with other people, you know, like have a party, and also for some rituals to define stages of that celebration. Some traditions are clearly interrelated, so Christmas draws on the Yule log tradition, which was when you would keep the same log burning throughout the Christmas period. And that's perhaps the strongest evidence for an earlier non-Christian tradition surviving into the present. So I don't think we can say decisively that modern Christmas traditions have been confused with Yule, Albanarthan, but as ever, the devil is in the detail. Yes. And as we're starting to learn as we you know, record this episode, there are lots of traditions just blending, meshing, intermingling as, as we go on, really. So yeah. it's quite hard to unpick all these different strands. But uh, you're doing a good job so far. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm also quite, I must say, I am shocked that someone who's purports to be a historian has gone and created fake historical evidence. I'm, yeah, it's, that it's, is scandalous. Uh, yeah, it's a very striking story. Um, he was very passionate, Morgan Oak, very passionate about prehistory. Everyone was very excited in Britain at the time. And he thought he was he was doing the right thing and going to the sources to find it. Yeah, his, his, his forgeries were very long lived. One of the striking things about the endurance of those forgeries is that later scholars in Wales would study his works and break down the connections and say, oh, these are probably actually not real. He's probably made them up. But a lot of Welsh researchers at the time in the late 19th century were publishing only in Welsh, in the Welsh language. And so by that time, well, you know what they say about a lie, it's gone around the world twice before you can catch a breath. And, and that's the version of what's happened with these forgeries. It's only in the early 20th century when this research that undid a lot of the forgeries that Morganu put out there started to get popular consciousness that we find, oh, okay, people are challenging uh, some of the things that he's published and uh, were otherwise very popular. It's a really interesting story. Leo's got a question about Jesus's birth for you, Will, and then we'll move on to another contributor. We'll have Megan lining up. Leo asks, is there 
any historical evidence that suggests that any aspects of the nativity story are true. So quite a winding, quite winding question. But, um. Yeah, no, but it's, it's great. What I'm appreciating most about, uh, about these questions is that people are asking, they're kind of casting a critical eye and they're not being cynical, but they want to know the detail. And that's where, like for historians, that's where a lot of the good stuff lies. So I'm very grateful for them. Yeah, so, so this question touches on a central aspect of the Christmas story for Christians. That's the birth of Jesus Christ. So the story goes that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, which at that time was part of the Roman Empire. And Jesus's mother, Mary, was at that time engaged to Joseph, who was, so the story goes, descended from David, who was a very important king in the Old Testament. Now, Christians believe that Jesus's father was not Joseph, but rather God. Or to put it another way, Mary became pregnant with Jesus without sexual intercourse, but rather through divine intervention. There are two points I want to make in answering Leo's question. The first relates to historical evidence that Leo's asked for, and the second relates to why historicity, that's the authenticity of the account according to other accounts in history, might not actually be as important as we think. So firstly, the evidence. Our sources for the birth of Jesus are the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, and they also present <laughs> some of the main problems regarding the nativity if we're talking about historical evidence. So the Gospels are the accounts of the life of Jesus from the perspective of two of his followers from his time as an adult. Now, historians are reluctant to set too much store by the accounts of Luke and Matthew because they are the only sources that talk about the birth of Jesus. Mm. Given that they are the followers of Jesus, historians tend to view what they say with some skepticism. So the Gospels don't always agree with each other, for example. So when Luke records that the archangel Gabriel appeared to Mary to tell her she was going to conceive and bear a son, historians ask why Matthew reports that the archangel spoke to Joseph, not Mary. And perhaps most strikingly for us today, perhaps obviously, both accounts are also open to the question of whether the archangel appeared at all. And I'm trying to say this as a historian here, the very existence of angels is far from accepted. Now, we might ask, is there anything in the account that's true? And this relates to the second part of my answer, the historicity. Historians tend to think that although the nativity accounts are suspect, there is very little doubt that Jesus was a real person and that he was probably crucified like the New Testament accounts report. If he was real, he was obviously born, and there is no small jump then to recognise that his mother may very well have been a woman called Mary, and that she was married to a man called Joseph. So while Jesus' existence is not in doubt, most historians take the view that the Nativity Gospel accounts are not primarily historical. But here is the crux. Perhaps we shouldn't regard them as primarily historical. Luke and Matthew were writing the story of Jesus's birth after the fact, when in their eyes, his supreme importance was not in doubt. It's worth saying that we don't regard all stories with an eye to historical insight or evidence. So perhaps we should extend that to the nativity. After all, the point of the story is not necessarily about recounting events as we in the 21st century would understand it, but rather about telling the whole story of Jesus's life and deeds and about ideas and actions that go beyond the story itself. I think to treat the nativity account strictly as an historic source is to misuse them. A bit like, in my mind, taking an F1 car to go to the supermarket for some shopping, for example. You can do that, but you won't get the most out of it for what that thing was made for. I think using the nativity for historical accounts is like that. It's misusing it. You have to understand what the text is trying to do, I think. As you say, the details are contradictory and 
scant, written by men who knew Jesus as an adult. So it's um, quite a difficult thing to answer, really. Um, I think so, yeah, yeah. What about the slaying of the innocents, the other children, the uh, young babies by King Herod? Is, is that historically accurate? I don't think it is historically accurate, but for the purposes of this podcast, it's not my area of expertise. <laughs> no, okay. All right. Basically, I think there is some disagreement between the account in the Bible and the timings of, of events that the Bible talks about the Roman authorities imposing, for example, under Herod in, in this case, versus independent evidence for Roman history in, in Judea and in Palestine. The dates don't quite match up, if that makes sense. So I don't think the early context of Jesus's life can strongly be tied to any independent uh, historical evidence, basically. Right. Interesting. And I've seen, uh, I think, documentaries in the past and may have read it somewhere as well, that Jesus was potentially not born in the year 00, that he was actually born perhaps even in 5 AD. Do you know anything about this? This kind of relates to the problems of, of the sources that we have and extrapolating from later accounts. I think the consensus is that Jesus wasn't born in zero AD, as, as your question, as your question suggests. He may have been born three or four years either side of that date. I actually wonder if it's slightly earlier. I think he may have been been born three or four BC. Um, right. If, okay. If, if people are, are thinking of a specific date, but um, I don't think it's settled for for the reasons that we've talked about. It's not just about thinking then about the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, but also trying to extrapolate from early Christian thinkers, for example, that, that tried to construct a whole framework of understanding the world through numbers and through years and trying to work backwards from the known date of Jesus's death. That's one thing that's for sure, 33 AD, competent in that, and then working backwards leads you to all sorts of, all sorts of issues. Mm. Let's bring in Megan now for a question, which is hopefully a bit simpler to answer. So well done, Will. You can take a breather. Freya asks, where does Boxing Day get its name, Megan? Yeah, really great question. And I'm, I hate to say it, I don't necessarily have a straightforward answer. It seems to be a theme coming through on this podcast already, <laughs> but I'll give you some theories. So first of all, Boxing Day does not come from the sport of boxing, nor does it come from sort of the contemporary sport of throwing boxes at people as you try to get what you want off the shelves in the shop um, <laughs> during the Boxing Day sales. That we can dismiss on the outset. But there are a few different theories how the 26th of December came to be known by the name Boxing Day, both in the United Kingdom and also indeed in some other British Commonwealth countries. So Boxing Day is also known as the Christian Saint Day of St. Stephen. And in fact, it's still marked as such in many places and um, where it's called St. Stephen's Day or variations thereof, for example, in, in much of Ireland, um, we talk about St. Stephen's Day. Now, St. Stephen was, is considered Christianity's first martyr after being stoned for his beliefs. He's also known for giving alms to the poor and his Saint Day became a traditional time for acts of charity towards the lower classes. Indeed, we have probably heard of St. Stephen from the Christmas song, Good King Wenchless, where on the feast of Stephen, he went Indeed. to give food and firewood to a poor man, reminding us of that connection um, with charity in the past. And this association chimed with theories for the name Boxing Day. And this is actually believed to be, in comparison to some of what Will's been talking about, a relatively modern term, which probably appeared in the first time around in the 1800s though deriving from older traditions. So one idea 
as to where Boxing Day came from is that it was named after arms or charity boxes placed in parish churches to collect donations for the poor, which were opened and distributed on the 26th in honour of St Stephen. And, you know, the giving to poor of different classes or indeed to servants is something that we see a tradition of long in our sights for the Christmas period. So, for example, at Battle Abbey, accounts in the 13th and 16th century show Christmas spending on gifts for the monastery servants. Another theory is that it is derived from the term Christmas boxes. These were boxes made up with food, gifts or money given to servants by their employers or indeed tradespeople by their patrons each year. So it could just be some money, it could be a box of some food, and as I said, gifts. And these would often be given on the 26th of December. Everyone was so busy working on either celebrating Christmas or indeed serving those celebrating Christmas on Christmas Day that it would come the day after. And we do have evidence of people associated with our sites giving Christmas boxes. Queen Victoria's diary from the 1850s records her walking to the kennels at Windsor Castle with her children to give Christmas boxes to the little McDonald's, although she actually did this on Christmas Day. You also find tradespeople going and essentially knocking on doors, asking for their Christmas box or essentially, I guess, their Christmas tip in the 19th century. So there's an account of a London footman and William Tyler wrote down on what is called about here Boxing Day. People go from house to house gathering their Christmas boxes. And he writes how they'd been called upon by sweeps, watermen, dustmen and postmen. And he wrote all these people expect to have half a shilling or half a crown each. So you kind of do see the sort of contemporary resonance of this where you might um, give your postie a little gift, uh, a Christmas thank you or binmen coming around giving them a biscuit, you know, a, a gingerbread or something or, or a bit of a tip to say thank you for their work throughout the year. So as well as receiving gifts, after all f- the family celebrations in sort of grand houses and where you'd find servants, they've worked really hard on Christmas Day and they might get their Christmas boxes, but they might also get that rare gift of a day off on Boxing Day. And indeed, we all have a day off on Boxing Day. It became a bank holiday in 1871. And at Audley End in Essex in the 1860s, this is exactly what happened. The servants had Boxing Day off and were given with their families a lovely dinner of beef, mutton and other Christmas food. So I think we can see a lot of continuation in traditions throughout history of charity, of gift giving associated with the Boxing Day. The exact theory as to how it had its name, I think the giving of Christmas boxes is great and we can see a lot of evidence of that. But yeah, no clear, straightforward, simple answer for you there, I'm afraid. (laughs) No. And I suppose in today's day and age, Boxing Day is kind of like the day where the boxes, where all the presents came in, um, goes into the recycling. So, um, you know, that's another way that it can be Boxing Day. So Christmas Day is Unboxing Day (laughs) and then Discarding the Boxes Day. So let's move on to a section called Christmas Food. Ethan would like to know why and when did the meat we eat at Christmas change from goose to turkey? Andrew? Well, you'd be surprised to hear that this is also not not a simple question. Basically, uh, the first thing to think about if we're talking about Christmas feasting is this has always been associated with the consumption of large quantities of meat, but that meat has not always been turkey or goose. For most of the history of England as a, a Christian country, Roast beef has been particularly the favoured meat of choice. And we found, you know, the classic sirloin of beef, it really remains the roast of choice throughout much of the 18th and into the 19th century. And also, as Megan was mentioning there, you get mutton as well being eaten widely at, at Christmas time. And I think this is partly because 
traditionally roast beef has been associated as being particularly patriotic and associated with virility and virtue. And so it's the meat of choice. And also because it's seen as like the sort of king of meats, if you're having a feast, it's the first thing you think of getting out onto the table to show your wealth and also just to sort of demonstrate your hospitality if you're inviting people around to dinner. And we find this, for instance, at, at Rest Park, where two fattened bulls were given to the poor of Flitton and Silso at Christmas for a Christmas feast in, in 1784. So you get this idea of giving of, of beef as a Christmas feast rather than giving of a Christmas turkey. That said, both goose and turkey have long been associated with Christmas. And, you know, you can see that in all sorts of ways. For instance, you have the children's nursery rhyme, Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat. So you get this idea of goose as being something that will be fattened up for Christmas. And certainly amongst the poorer part of the population, a Christmas goose was what they would aspire to at Christmas time. Initially, turkeys would be much more limited to the wealthier consumer. And you, you see them first found in England around the 1520s. You get in the sort of Tudor period where you first see mentions of turkeys being consumed at Christmas. And their popularity grows, though, considerably during the sort of into the 18th century and into the 19th century. Most of these turkeys are, are actually raised in, in England. They're raised in, in East Anglia, in Norfolk and Suffolk. And then they're walked to London with special shoes on to, to enable them to walk long distances and then sold when they reach London, because obviously that's the main market for meat, particularly for the wealthy elite. And for instance, we see uh, again from Rest Park, in a letter from Jemima Marchioness Gray, she mentions that some turkeys with their wings pinioned have been sent from London to Rest Park in 1772 to be fattened up for Christmas. So you get this idea of turkeys being purchased in London and brought back to your estate to be eaten at Christmas. But also some turkeys could be produced more locally. For instance, quite a lot of the tenants' leases on the Rest Estate in the 1730s and 40s they include the provision of two turkeys or a fowl or a goose at Christmas. So the tenant had to provide the landowner, in this case, the Duke of Kent, it would have been at this point, with some Christmas turkey to provide food for the family over, over the festive season. So you get this idea then of turkeys being an aspirational Christmas dish, particularly by the Victorian period, which the wealthy could afford and the poor aspired to. And you can see this in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where you get the Cratchits have to opt for a goose, as many of the poor families would have done. And then you have the prized turkey, which remains hanging up in the butcher's shop until the reformed Scrooge purchases it and provides a, a dinner for Cratchit and some of his family. So this idea that it's the turkey is the thing to aspire to, the goose is what most families would have had. And if we look at, say, the orderly end consumption books for 1868, and they've already been mentioned by Megan before, you find turkey and chicken, but not goose, listed as, as the food that was being consumed at Christmas. On the uh, week beginning the 20th of December in 1868, you have 541 pounds of beef and mutton being eaten, but also eight turkeys, 34 rabbits, 19 pheasants, 18 partridges, two ducks, four chickens and a woodcock. <laughs> so you can see there that there's turkeys in there, but it's amongst a whole lot of other food that's being eaten. And it's quite likely that this turkey might have been, it wouldn't necessarily have been the main roast on the table. It could have been served as an entree or as, as a sort of side dish that would be carved and put on the uh, plates of the various different guests, with still the sirloin of beef being the centrepiece. So it's a mixed picture. It's not that turkey is the centrepiece as we would have it. 
And it's only really when you get to the 1920s and 30s that you get the Christmas dinner comes to resemble a meal that we would have eaten today with turkey as the centrepiece on the table with its bread sauce and stuffing and so forth. And even then, it would only be those who were as wealthy as the court old, say, Elton Palace, who would be able to have the turkey kept in a fridge before Christmas. The rest of the population would have to buy their turkey very close to Christmas because they could only keep it in their larder for a few days before they served it up. So you would basically be buying it just a few days before Christmas. And you may well be wondering how much would it have cost them? Well, even in the 1920s and 30s, it would have cost the average person about a week's wages, which is quite a lot of money in comparison If you think today, a turkey probably costs a couple of hours worth of work for the average worker. So turkey has, until very recently, has been something which was, uh, you know, aspirational. And if you were wealthy or you were middle class, you may be able to have a turkey. But really for the poor, it would be a goose or something else that even less than what you would have been able to have on your Christmas table. Yes, Ethan's question is assuming that goose was the previous meat and turkey superseded it. But I think it's sort of more complicated than that. Yeah, it's more of a class thing. It's more to do with how much money you've got, really, and 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 also your preferences. I mean, it's there's a whole mix of different meats being eaten at Christmas. It's effectively just a time of feasting, so you you eat meat, which is obviously a more luxury good in larger quantities than you would do in the rest of the year, and it can be any different type of meat. And for much of the period, it's beef that's more prized than a bird. You know, either, yes. whether that's a goose or a turkey. But yeah, when you come into the 20th century, the turkey starts to take centre stage. And I think historians looking back even on this podcast and how we do Christmas now in maybe 200 years might be asking the same question, what did they eat? Well, it depends on the family, doesn't it, really? I mean, some people might want the vegan option. Some people might want the uh, pigs in blankets and some people might want chicken. Other people might want turkey or pork or beef or whatever. So yeah, just, I mean, just it's, anything goes these days, doesn't it? Yeah, if you go down a Christmas dinner menu, there are often a, ho- a whole range of different choices there for you. Absolutely. Underscore Bill underscore Hayward from Threads has a question about the history of pigs in blankets, which I've just mentioned, i.e. these small sausages wrapped up in bacon. Do we know what the origins of these festive favourites are, Will? So the short answer is no, I'm afraid. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> we don't know for sure. But, but they are delicious. But they, are, they are actually my favourite as well, so I'm very glad to be <laughs> answer a question on them. I'll answer this by talking about the evidence from medieval England to give you a sense of where we might be finding the origins of pigs in blankets. And I think part of it lies in how sausages and bacon at Christmas were a fixture of the diet in medieval England for some time. So if you don't know this, up until in the medieval period, pigs were generally slaughtered in autumn or early winter, having been fed and fattened on woodlands, on acorns and things like roots in that kind of late autumn, early winter period, because apart from anything, people were worried about not being able to feed the pigs. But also, you know, that's the time when we're going into a time when you can't grow as much food. And also, incidentally, pork is, is an ideal meat to be treated, whether that's smoked, salted, air dried, and then to be stored for long-term use over that prolonged period of winter. So we find in the medieval period that October, November, especially December, is a time when the consumption of things like offal and sausages and other byproducts is very popular. So these foods were common on Christmas tables from the 15th century at least, and common dishes were things called bloodings and leverings, which are basically black pudding and liver sausage. So it's it's not for the faint-hearted. Of course, one of the most famous dishes from medieval England that may be an ancestor of the humble pig and blanket is the fattened boar. 
which was especially favoured at Christmas. And indeed, one of the most famous dishes around boar was the boar's head. And this wasn't actually the head of a boar, but if you're squeamish, take your headphones off for the next <laughs> short segment. It wasn't the head of a boar, but rather it was the enclosing skin of the head that was removed, emptied, cleaned, and then the head was packed with sequence layers of richly spiced minced pork meat, bacon, and rabbit meat, each one separated with layers of bacon. And this whole thing was was sealed, this head was sealed, and it was wrapped in muslin, and it was then boiled, and it was served as kind of a cool dish, as like a cool pie in slices, and apparently it's got a taste like a very strong pork pie. So I think although you might not necessarily assume that the pig and blanket is descended from the boar's head of medieval feasts, I think that's where maybe part of the tradition comes from. It's very complicated, isn't it, already? You can you can see. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. One food historian who, who has gone through the process, perhaps quite daringly, of recreating the boar's head, he said it took three weeks to prepare in total. So it's not, you have to obviously procure the head, but then you have to treat it and to be careful with using you know an animal's an animal's skin basically and and then to procure the other meat and treat that and boil it and make sure that it's cool and prepared and and decorated as well it wasn't just that then you had this what would look like kind of like a blood sausage at the end it wasn't just that after it was cooked and boiled it was then dressed so eyes were added to it created out of lard and eyebrows and bristles and its ears were put up with sprigs of herb for example to create that ostentatious impression that Andrew was talking about for a later period you know Christmas was a sequence of dishes not just one central one but perhaps it's fair to say the king of the medieval feast at Christmas was probably the bull's head. Yes Megan, I see you've sort of raised your hand and you'd like to make a point following on from what Will was saying about pigs and blankets. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of think about where our modern pigs and blankets come from. So that's our cocktail sausages wrapped in bacon, those delicious side dishes that we have with our Christmas meal. Food historian Annie Gray's written a bit about this and she identifies sort of some precursors to pigs and blankets as we heard Will's been talking about those medieval predecessors but in the 19th century they also liked wrapping things in bacon as well so you could have your oysters wrapped in bacon or your prunes wrapped in bacon or closer to our pigs in blankets sort of sausage meatballs wrapped in bacon known as sausage cakes. The actual term pigs in blankets it becomes again a bit more complicated as to how it came associated with what we call a pig and blanket today. So it came over from America. In America, it was not used for what we would call a pig and blanket. And after arriving in the UK in sort of post World War II era, was used for recipes with sausage, meat, and bacon, including one which I really, really want to try: a sausage stuffed through a roast or baked potato wrapped in bacon. I think that's going to be on my <laughs> Christmas dinner table this year. Wow. But it's in the 1980s where cocktail sausages wrapped in bacon becomes sort of a real festive Christmas favourite. And then in the 1990s, acquiring the name Pigs in Blankets. So that long association with pork in all its various forms and wrapping forms, things with bacon or putting bacon in skins of pigs' heads sort of has a long history, but actually the name a relatively recent one. Pork in pork or double pork, I guess you could call it. Let's move on to a sort of more puddingy question now. Are mince pies still illegal after Oliver Cromwell banned Christmas and its celebrations? So, Megan, uh, how would you answer this one? Well, thank goodness they're not illegal because I am a massive fan of mince pies. I know that's controversial. Not everyone loves them. But me here, 
definitely love a mince pie. And we do um, need to clarify, don't we, that um, mince pie is not only Cockney rhyming slang for eyes, mince pie's eyes, but um, it's mince meat as in fruit, like sultanas and, you know, dried fruits, this sort of thing. Yeah, the modern mince pie is sort of a sweet pie with lots of um, sort of seasoning we uh, associate with the festive season, those lovely Christmas smells. To answer Trevor's question, I'll take it in two parts. First, Cromwell and the so-called ban on Christmas, and second, the mince pies. It's actually a quite commonly held belief that Cromwell banned Christmas, and this is really a bit of a myth. As a godly man and a moral man, he may well have supported the ban, but he does not appear to have had a great deal of personal involvement in its introduction. And indeed, he wasn't around when Parliament introduced some of the ordinances that sort of restricted Christmas. In fact, moves towards reigning in what was raucous behaviour, which had come to characterise Christmas in the period, came in the 1640s, before Cromwell became Lord Protector in December 1653, though they would continue under the Protectorate. So that sort of immoral behaviour, excess and extravagance around Christmas in the period was not looked on kindly by some, and especially those in the Puritan movement. To add to this, the celebration had Roman Catholic associations. And in the 1640s, the celebration of Christmas was gradually chipped away at by Parliament. And this included, in 1645, a new directory of public worship, which was essentially a guide on how you should worship um, in the period, was adopted by Parliament and prescribed that while Sundays were holy days, there were to be no festival days, having no warrant in the word of God, so, so not being written in the scriptures and, and the such like. And this was confirmed and reiterated in 1647 when Parliament passed an ordinance which banned the feasts of Christmas, Easter and Whitsun. So it's not just Christmas, but Christmas becomes a real sort of emotive point. And it bans all celebrations of Christmas and services. And these rulings were in place until the Restoration in 1660. So that's the Cromwell part of the question. On to the mince pies. There was nothing which sort of explicitly banned it wasn't written down mince pies, no mince pies per se, other than that banning of the celebration of Christmas and particularly the idea of immoral extravagance and excess, which Christmas had come to sort of symbolise. And with ingredients such as spices and sugars, mince pies would have been a costly treat enjoyed on special occasions by the Tudor period, increasingly associated with, but not exclusively enjoyed on Christmas. And in fact, the idea that mince pies were banned probably comes from, as one historian argues, the defenders of Christmas during the restrictions in the 17th century. So you're taking away our Christmas. You know, it's a pretty miserable time. It's winter. It's cold. We've had the civil wars. It's, it's not a great time. And now you're taking away our Christmas. What a better way to infuriate people than the utter outrage and the absurdity that you could get in trouble for eating a mince pie. So how long exactly did we have these rules from Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentarians that these feast days were banned? So most of the rulings made during that period were undone essentially at the Restoration in 1660. That's quite a long time then between 1647 and 1660. Yeah, it was. And people weren't particularly delighted about it. There were Christmas riots which took place. And I think the challenge of it is, is how do you actually in, enforce that? And I think, um, you know, a lot of historians have written how it sort of pushed that celebration into more private quarters rather than a, a public celebration of Christmas. Well, as a follow on question about our mince pies question, do mince pies date very far back? Yeah, they do. Mince pies have been around for a long time. But the mince pies we're talking about um, in this 17th century period would have been quite different to those sweet treats that we enjoy today. They were often larger pies rather than necessarily individualised pies. You had to share. Ooh, no, not for a mince pie. 
and they were a mix of sweet and savoury as well. So we do actually have a recipe for miniature pies associated with one of our sites, Kirby Hall in Northamptonshire. And within a bundle of sort of receipts and recipes is a slip of paper with a header to make mince pies and labelled on the right hand corner is Kirby. So we think it is pies that were made at Kirby Hall. Although this is undated, it's likely from the late 17th century, maybe early 18th century. And some of the ingredients are what we might expect today. So apples, currants, dates, candied citron, orange, lemon. Then you added in reduced, so that's unripe grape or crabapple juice, sack. So you get your alcohol, that's a sweet fortified wine, yum. Rose, water, caraway, comfie, all seasoned with nutmeg, cinnamon, ginger, salt, sweetened with sugar. You with me? It sounds very much similar to what we would have today, but... In your Kirby Hall mince pie mix, you also have to add two boiled and shredded neat's tongues. So in other words, sort of cow calves tongues and beef suet. So that's where you get your mix of sweet and savoury. And it's not till we go into sort of the 19th century that we're beginning to have sort of just sweet um, mince pies that we think of today. Well, let's move on to Christmas decorations now. Here's a question from Jill Butler through Facebook. Why are fir trees decorated, Andrew? Right. Well, this is a, another very interesting question. And I think we need to go back a little bit further to when there's been a very long tradition of decorating our houses and also churches and other, other buildings with evergreen tree branches and garlands. And this is something that you can see across different cultures. So you can see it in ancient Egyptians, Judaism, and you can see it amongst uh, European pagans and amongst the Romans as well, this idea of using greenery in the winter months. And decorative Christmas greenery can be seen in London as early as the 15th century. So traditionally, the Christmas colours for greenery would include green, symbolising eternal life, red for the blood of Jesus Christ, and gold, as this was one of the gifts given by the three magi and symbolised royalty. So for this reason, you have holly being used as a a favourite garlanding greenery in this period. So if we then move on to think about the Christmas tree as such, well, the decoration of a tree, usually an evergreen conifer at Christmas time, that's more of a German tradition associated with St Boniface. And from the early modern period, you find German Protestants bringing decorated trees into their homes. And this possibly, we think, relates to the idea of the tree of paradise from medieval mystery plays, which were often performed on the 24th of December to commemorate the story of Adam and Eve. And in such plays, you'd have the tree decorated with apples to represent the forbidden fruit and wafers to represent the Eucharist and redemption. So when these then become adapted as Christmas trees, the apples get replaced with red balls and they later become baubles. And that's how we get the traditional decoration of the Christmas tree. So we we find that this German tradition in the early 19th century starts to become very popular amongst the European nobility. So right across Europe, it spreads. And in Britain, the first Christmas trees were introduced by the German-born Queen Charlotte. She's recorded as giving a, a Christmas tree to her children in 1800. And up until then, of course, we've had this tradition of bringing evergreen branches into churches and into homes. So it was building on an existing tradition, but it was a, a new evocation of this, of bringing an actual tree in. And that can be traced to Queen Charlotte. And at first, this custom doesn't really spread much beyond the royal family and some of the leading aristocrats of the day. 
but it becomes popularised, of course, as we've often heard, by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Again, Prince Albert is German and the Queen has German ancestry. So the Queen would have been familiar with Christmas trees because her mother, the Duchess of Kent, would have placed a Christmas tree in her room at Kensington Palace every Christmas when she was a child. So, for instance, in her 1832 journal, when she's 13, she writes, After dinner, we went into the drawing room near the dining room There were two large round tables on which were placed two trees hung with lights and sugar ornaments. And then she talks about all the presents being placed around the trees. So that's a very familiar sight that we got there, dating from 1832 in Queen Victoria's childhood. After she marries Prince Albert, the custom becomes more widespread and it's adopted by the middle classes. And this particularly happens after the Illustrated London News in 1848 publishes a a report where they have a detailed description of the Royal's Christmas tree at Windsor Castle, which provides lots of details and shows it has an illustration of the family gathered around the tree. And this encourages a lot of middle-class families to start wanting trees. And you find this as early as 1844. I found a a record in a, a newspaper, the Fife Herald. And this reports about German families in Manchester who've introduced a custom of a Christmas tree, and they talk about it spreading amongst the English, the pine tops being bought at the market for this purpose. And they talked about it being generally illuminated with taper for every day of the year. So you get this idea that in the early Victorian period, the Christmas tree starting to become familiar. And we have an example from our own sites, the de Grey family at Rest Park. They plant a giant sequoia in the garden, in 1856, it's one of the first times this, this tree has been introduced, only soon after this tree has been introduced to the UK. And in each year, this tree is wheeled into, from the conservatory into the house and decorated as a Christmas tree. And then when it gets too large, it's planted out in the grounds where it still survives today. It's now 30 metres tall. So clearly it wouldn't fit into the house any longer. But you know, <laughs> that, we, we, we argue that's the, the, an example of one of the oldest surviving Christmas trees. So that, I think, is where we get the origins of the tree. And Rest Park, you've mentioned a couple of times, that's Bedfordshire, isn't it? Which is Yes, it is. It's about sort of 40-odd miles north-ish of London, so uh, well worth a visit as well. Quick question about Christmas trees from Max then, Andrew. Did the Victorians really place live candles on Christmas trees, and did this ever result in any serious fires that we know of? The Victorians did indeed. I mean, and actually it was seen as part of the sort of smell of Christmas was this idea of the slightly singed needles of the of the Christmas tree, the smell that would generate, was seen as being part of the smell of Christmas. I mean, we've got examples of the Earl and Countess of Dudley who had a Christmas tree in 1893, which was made for, they were put in place in their ballroom and they talked about having a children's party there all the children come in and were given presents off the tree and they mentioned it was lit with up to a thousand colored candles and as you can imagine the size of this tree and the amount of candles that are on it and we don't really see until you get into the 20th century really many mentions of, of actual fires caused by the candles on the trees and then you know there's one example for actually from a school where the candles lead to the tree going up in flames and then the teacher has to quickly get out a fire extinguisher and put it out. And then another example of a teacher who was playing the role of Santa Claus being badly burned in a school in Warrington when a lighted candle set fire to his cotton wool beard. And you can imagine how that would have gone off. And there's also references in newspapers to sort of giving you advice on how to avoid having your tree go up in flames. So in 1947, in the Aberdeen Press, they say that as long as you keep your tree moist by standing it in water so that the leaves don't become too dry and brittle, then it shouldn't really be a problem. And this is seen as a problem really up until 
very recently. I mean, I found a reference to in 1993, some fire brigade chiefs in Merseyside wrote in to complain that the producers of Richard and Judy's show this morning had featured a Christmas tree decked with lighted candles and how this was a a fire risk. So it's really something that has has been a problem throughout the centuries or throughout the, the years. Yeah, we should just explain, actually, for our international listeners that um, this morning is a very big morning TV programme and has been for many years. So uh, to have Richard and Judy mentioned on the podcast is a first. Sebastian would like to know what the origin of Christmas crackers is, Andrew. Crackers are another Victorian invention. We know that they're invented in London in the 1840s by a confectioner called Tom Smith. And he wanted to introduce the French bonbon to London consumers. This was a sort of sugar-wrapped almond in a twist of wax paper. You can still buy them widely in French patisseries today. And to make his version a bit more individual, Smith wanted to also include a motto in with each packet. And then he was also inspired to add a crackle element by hearing the log cracking on his fire. So in order to do this, he had to wrap the bonbon in a rather larger paper wrapper to be able to incorporate the crackle and the the motto and, and, and so forth. And this is how the cracker was developed. And later on, they replaced the bonbon with a trinket. And then Tom Smith's son, Walter, introduced other elements such as gifts, paper hats, colourful designs and whatever, really to distinguish his crackers from those of rivals because lots of rival companies started producing them as well. And so that's how we got the cracker we all know today. Mm. A question now that you'll need a ladder for. Lanny Clark Ridder on Facebook asks, why and since when is mistletoe for kissing under, Andrew? Well, this is one that takes us back a little bit further to pagan times. And we know that mistletoe was important to the Druids and and it was important in ritual right through the pre-Christian era. And particularly the white berries of the mistletoe have often been associated with fertility And the Romans also used mistletoe and they associated it with peace, love and understanding. And they hung it over doorways and it was seen to sort of protect the household during the winter months. So when you get the Christian era coming along, it becomes incorporated as a Christmas decoration under which lovers would be expected to kiss. And this harks back to that pagan tradition of associating with fertility and also the idea of associating with protection from the Roman period as well. So it's seen as well as being fertility symbol, it's seen as a protection against witches and demons. So there's there's multiple uses for mistletoe. And by the 18th century, we find kissing under the mistletoe has particularly become a common custom amongst household servants. And this continues into the Victorian period. And the, the tradition dictates, of course, that the man was allowed to kiss any woman standing underneath the mistletoe and that bad luck would befall any woman who refused a kiss. <laughs> and one of the associated variations of this tradition is that with each kiss, you would pluck a berry from the sprig of mistletoe and that the kissing had to stop once all the berries had been removed. That's quite a lot of kissing going on and hopefully it was consensual. Um... <laughs> well, I hope so, Yes. Yes. But I mean, it was certainly something that seems to have been sort of kept going by the household servants. I mean, it was, I'm sure it was adopted more widely, but it was particularly within gentry and aristocratic households. It would be something which would be put above the doorway by one of the, the household servants, possibly the butler. And then, uh, and then yes, would give consent to the, uh, you know, sort of kissing under the mistletoe. Yes. That's interesting because it feeds into the sort of Lords of Misrule, general sort of upended 
roles, you know, naughtiness that sort of creeps in in the festive period. That sort of feeds in, doesn't it, really, to this mistletoe tradition? It does a bit. I mean, um, because as well as I've seen some references that said it, it gave the female servants the permission to kiss the male servants as well. So it, it was, you know, it could it could work in both ways. It would basically give you the permission to do something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do within that hierarchical servant body, you know, where there was very much, you know, your life was controlled during the the usual periods of the year. So, yes, it it was a time when social norms could be upended. A couple of questions now about Victorian Christmas celebrations and how they play into the Christmas traditions we know today. Mel Durango on X, formerly known as Twitter, says, I've been told that the origins of Christmas are rather like those of the British royal family, i.e. mostly German. Is this the case, Andrew? Well, I mean, again, I mean, you'd gather this is partially true from some of the things I've said, but in other senses, not. So in some senses, it's true, but other senses, not true. So some elements of our modern Christmas go back a long way, as we've heard. I mean, based on pagan traditions, other Christmas customs, as as um, Will was saying, have medieval roots. Things like caroling, some of the Christmas feasting around this time, Christmas cake, of course. But many other Christmas traditions do date from the Georgian and Victorian eras when our royal family was essentially German. And so they brought over and popularised many of the traditions they remembered from home, like Christmas trees we just talked about, but also the placing of presents on or under trees. So, you know, the idea of placing gifts onto a tree, that again is a Christmas tradition coming from Germany. Other traditions, though, have emerged autonomously in England during the Victorian period. Things like Christmas cards, they're invented by Sir Henry Cole, Christmas crackers, as we just heard, and all the things that were imported later from America, often drawing on earlier European traditions, such as the traditions associated with Santa Claus and the hanging up of Christmas stockings. These are things that have been European traditions that have gone over to America and then come back from America to Britain. So really, Christmas is a bit of an amalgam of old and new, mixing up the different pagan beliefs, Christian traditions from across Europe and the New World. It's a real mishmash. Yes, absolutely. And you even got those Roman influences and even potentially the feasting uh, for the winter solstice at Stonehenge. Exactly. Yeah, it's a huge mixture of different things. I mean, as, as I think Megan said, Christmas is constantly evolving and it constantly assimilating and adopting different traditions from different cultures into it to actually, you know, become the set of Christmas traditions that we celebrate today. And even those are not fixed. So Finn wants to know, and this is a question for Megan, are there any Victorian Christmas traditions that haven't survived through to the present day? Well, I think in answering this, we sort of have to pick up on what, what Andrew's just said. It's it's actually very hard to find Victorian traditions that are purely Victorian. You get things like the crackers and the Christmas cards and those things which are very much driven by technology and commercialisation and all these new things going on in the Victorian era. But so many of the things which would have been familiar in a Victorian Christmas have much longer history. So I actually found this question quite hard to find something that's specifically Victorian, also that doesn't have a legacy in some variant form today. How about Christmas cards? We've just talked about Christmas cards, that they, the sort of commercially produced Christmas card is, is an invention of the Victorian era. Now, we still have Christmas cards today. I mean, some might argue that not as many people send them. Is, it, is this a dying tradition or not? I, I still send my Christmas cards and I, I love receiving them. But Christmas cards look quite different. That tradition of sending the normal festive imagery that we imagine, you know, Father Christmas and the foliage and things like that was sort of coming into existence in in the 19th century. But you also saw non-seasonal depictions. So you might get a Christmas card with the seaside on the front. And then you got the truly weird 
which is sort of deeply embedded in cultural references and humour of the Victorian era, which don't always translate today, such as quite a lot of dead birds, insects and lobsters chasing and attacking children, creepy <laughs> clowns. So tradition of sending humorous cards, definitely still there. I'm not sure we would go quite to those ends today. And talking again about Christmas cards today, we might look up in um, the press, you know, what's the big Christmas film that we're going to sit and watch? Well, you could have found reviews of Christmas cards in the press at the time. These are a big thing and they were quite often collected. And they were displayed and they could be displayed all year round. They weren't necessarily sort of the throwaway items that many of us think about today. In terms of something we've already talked about, Christmas lights, I didn't realise uh, it still went on till 1993, but Victorians decorating Christmas trees that was popularised in the area. We don't put live candles, lit candles on trees anymore. It made me think about another fire hazard of the Victorian Christmas, which is a game probably played as early as the 16th century, but quite popular among Victorian revellers called Snapdragon. And we know Queen Victoria liked this and that it was played in the Hall at Audley End and in Essex on New Year's Eve in 1846. And this was essentially where you put dried fruit in a bowl, slapped some alcohol on top, lit it on fire, and then the game was to try and pull it out and pop it in your mouth to extinguish it. Don't do this at home. I think that's that's gone. And then again, food has a long legacy, and we've talked about the kind of meats which we would perhaps see on a Victorian table, but there are other things that today we perhaps don't eat as much. Fumantry, which um, was around since the medieval era, which was a kind of porridge made with grains and raisins and currants, make it fancy. And it kind of reminds me of bread sauce, which is absolutely one of my favourite Christmas delights. And we've talked about meats. I don't think, however, today we would find a swan on our Christmas table, but Queen Victoria was partial to a roast swan. So I think there are a lot of things which might be familiar in the big concept, but the details are different. And I think a lot of it has a much older, longer legacy. But I didn't actually find that purely Victorian tradition that we don't do anymore. So, yeah, let me know if I've, I've missed something. We are beginning to wrap up our uh, Christmas Q&A, but we do have time for a few final questions. Theo asks... Where do the more fantastical elements of Father Christmas come from, such as having a flying sleigh and coming down the chimney to deliver presents? So, Andrew, this one's for you. Surprising as it might be, most of the features that we now associate with Father Christmas first appear in a poem, which you probably most of you had heard of, The Night Before Christmas. Now, this was written anonymously in 1823 by an American professor of literature called Clement Moore. And it's due to this poem that we get lots of the features of Father Christmas that we're familiar with, being clad in fur, covered in soot as he comes down the chimney, being cheery and jovial, and having his miniature sleigh with eight reindeer. But this vision that we have of Father Christmas is drawing on also building on much older traditions. So we have a much older tradition of Father Christmas that goes really right back to pagan times. In the pagan winter festivals, you had a Father Christmas figure who would represent the coming of the spring. And he wore a long green hooded cloak and had a wreath of holly. And by the 16th century, this Father Christmas had been adopted into the Christian tradition and he was firmly established as a sort of large man dressed in green who brought peace, joy and goodwill and also was in charge of the revelry at Christmas time. So we heard before about the drunkenness and revelry at Christmas time. This was very much associated with Father Christmas. And then we also have in the 19th century, we get the story of St. Nicholas, also absorbed into the legend of Father Christmas. Now, St. Nicholas, with the, the Dutch version of him being Sinterklaas, which then morphed into Santa Claus, 
He was a bishop in Turkey whose feast day was celebrated on the 6th of December. And St. Nicholas is associated with the giving of gifts. This is based on the story of how he dropped money down the chimney of a pious poor man with three daughters. From this, we get both the story of Father Christmas coming down the chimney, but also the idea of hanging up stockings at the chimney for the money to be dropped into. So this tradition, which was associated with the 6th of December, is then during the 19th century moved to the Christmas Day on the 25th of December and becomes part of this Christmas tradition tied in with the earlier image of Father Christmas. And then it all sort of is brought together, as I say, in this poem from 1823. But then, of course, we have some elements such as the dressing of Santa in red, which is much more recent. It's We can thank the Coca-Cola company for this, really, because they did a an advertisement in the 1930s, which had their Santa dressed in a signature red colour, which, of course, was the colour of Coke. So, you know, some of the elements of it are, are much, much more recent. So it's really, again, it's, a, it's something which has very ancient traditions, but has accreted different elements over the years so that what we see today as being Santa Claus is really very much an amalgam of different things, some of which date from early Christian tradition from St. Nicholas, some date from the pagan Father Christmas, some of them from this poem written in the 1820s and others from the marketing of the Coca-Cola company. In fact, um, you see both traditions reflected in the children's film Santa Claus the Movie from the 1980s, I seem to remember, starring Dudley Moore. That you have the Father Christmas character, who I forget who, who he's being played by. He wears a green suit and then he changes to a red suit. So that's an interesting point. Yeah, and in some parts of the world, you, do, you still do get St. Nicholas dropping presents for children and he's dressed in green. So mm. it's not a universal thing of Santa Claus bringing presents and, you know, the Dutch Sinterklaas that is still associated with St. Nicholas and parts of Europe, you still get children being given their presents on St. Nicholas Day rather than Christmas Day. And which is St. Nicholas Day? It's the 6th of December, so much earlier. Isaac is keen to know when Christmas comes to an end. So he says, how long should you keep your decorations up for, Megan? Controversial question, isn't it? I think we all have our traditions. I don't know about you, but I found that round here they went up very early this year but we'll wait and see when they come down. And I think a lot of us will have come across the belief that leaving up decorations beyond the 12th night is bad luck. However, this is actually a relatively modern tradition. And if we go back to the Middle Ages, you could have enjoyed your festive adornments for much longer. And actually, we did a bit on this um, a few years ago here at English Heritage back in 2021, when it was an incredibly difficult year with lockdowns and COVID. We said, keep your decorations up and keep a little bit of merriment. Keep them up till Candlemas on the 2nd of February. So Candlemas, or the Feast of Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary, was the official end of Christmas in medieval England. And there is evidence that decorations were kept up until the evening before. But do this with a word of caution. Don't leave them up beyond this, or they might become possessed by goblins. As one 17th century poem describes, that so the superstitious find, no one least branch there left behind, for look how many leaves there be, neglected their maids, trust to me, so many goblins you shall see. So there you go. Be brave. Do it till uh, the night before Candlemas, but no longer. Okay. Finally, Esme is going to close this episode for us with a bang. She asks, which period in history had the most raucous Christmas celebrations? Who wants to start us off? I can, if you like. Okay, Andrew. Um, I was I was going to vote for the Tudors, and I really hope that nobody else has done. And it was picking up on this reference to the Lord of Misrule that was mentioned before. The fact you upending all the uh, social conventions 
And the fact that the Lord of Misrule is generally someone who's associated with feasting and merrymaking, and as we heard also the old Father Christmas as being associated with lots of, of revelry. And, you know, I was just looking at some records of the royal court at the time of the Tudors, and you find that a Lord of Misrule, Henry VII, has a Lord of Misrule appointed this is an official royal Lord of Misrule because, of course, there were Lords of Misrule appointed across the country by various different communities. But this was the, the one appointed by the king. And he appointed one every year of his reign, as did Henry VIII. And, but this, it really comes to a, to, to a sort of peak under the reign of Edward VI, where in order to sort of distract attention from the fact that you've got the sort of regency, the Duke of Northumberland basically promotes absolutely lavish entertainments involving the Lord of Misrule. It's a, a gentleman called Ferrers who's appointed the Lord of Misrule and he's given permission to sort of develop a, a, an incredibly elaborate pageant lasting for 12 days, which involves feasting, a mock midsummer show, feats of arms, so men in armour uh, having mock battles, a jousts on hobby horses, hunting and hawking, and several masks where all the guests wore incredibly elaborate face coverings, and obviously lots of drinking and feasting and revelry as well. So, yeah, that's my vote for the Tudors. Okay, sounds pretty raucous, pretty active. Megan, what's your vote? Well, I have to confess, I had the same vote as Andrew. So uh, you've got two out of three, so it's down to Will for who had the most raucous Christmas. Okay, so Will, you started off our podcast with some very detailed answers. Can you give us a concise, precise one for this final one? Yeah, so I think um, I'm contract bound to vote for the medieval period, unfortunately, but I want to give a short day in the sun to the god of the harvest. I think Saturnalia sounds like it was, although it's not Christmas celebrations, uh, what we're talking about, I think it's quite similar. And I think all the fun of the street party sounds great, though. What put me off Saturnalia is is the squeamishness around the sacrifices that were made to the gods. So I think probably medieval Christmas, and I'll, I'll explain my reasoning through a short anecdote from the 14th century. There's a bishop who reports that he was conducting a service in his cathedral on Holy Innocence, which is the 28th of December. And rather than solemnly observing the liturgy, the clergy and choir boys started miming to each other and uh, that descended into mudslinging, which caused the entirety of the congregation to dissolve into disorderly laughter and illicit mirth. I think <laughs> that captures some of the fun and silliness of the medieval period at Christmas, so that gets my vote. And laughter, I guess you could say, is the gift that keeps on giving in a way. And that's probably a good way to uh, conclude our episode. So thanks all three of you for taking the time to uh, explain everything that all our listeners wanted to know about Christmas. And we wish you all all around the world, whatever your faith and convictions, a very, very happy December period, shall we say. And um, see you all again on the other side in the new year. So thanks all. Yes, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're investigating two Neolithic burial chambers in Kent. It kind of is a little bit misleading because it looks like a freestanding monument, but it, it wouldn't have originally looked quite like that. It would have been more like some of the other long barrows and cairns that we get across England um, at the start of the Neolithic. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>